Tonight, we'll pick up from verse 12 of chapter 1. Our co-host for the evening is Terence. So can you read for us, Terence, from verse 12 to verse 18? Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own, sorry, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Amen. Yes, thank you so much, Terence. Um, okay, the stop says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. So like we pointed out last week, the Greek word that is translated trials is the same Greek word that's translated temptations. And that word is pirasmos. And so Temptation there is referring to trials in that sense. It's just our English translation that's using the same word for both. But you can read this as blessed is the man who endures trial or trials. For when he's, he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So very shortly, we're going to try to differentiate right between temptations and trials because that is what James does um, but right off the bat you can see that like we said last week the purpose of trials is not so you can fail or so you can fall or so you can have a terrible life it's not that God hates you so much that he's making your path more difficult than it should be the purpose of trials friends is for approval so that you can be approved so that your faith can be can become precious so that your faith can be stamped that um, can be stamped in the heavens to principalities to powers to every being that cares to know um, that you are god's man and every good thing that god wants to bring into your life there is a reasonable premise to justify that good thing to justify that you will be a faithful steward of that good thing because your faith has endured and James looks forward into the far future, right? And looks at trials in this world um, as a whole. Because remember that he's writing to, to Jews, right? That were scattered. Um, he said the 12 tribes scattered across the world. And if you um, read the book of Acts, you realize that um, a big factor that, was, that, that triggered this scattering was intense persecution in Jerusalem, right? And so, it's not always a very pleasant and convenient experience when you have to, when you're forced to live outside of your home country or your home city, outside of where you know people, where you have friends. That experience by itself can be like a trial. You know, it's not today that we have WhatsApp and video calling that um, you might miss people physically, but you can stay in touch with them via video. Like these people literally um, were fleeing to places where they may not even have been able to speak the language, where the culture, like, it's, like it is for everyone else, would have been very shocking to them. And so James looks far forward into the future. The same way for us, you know, you might, you might have some trials around your life, some difficulties that appear to have altered your life permanently, right? Like no matter how much you heal and recover, this thing will always be in your story, for example, and you have to live with it somehow like that. James says that there is a promise. He says he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's so much in this verse, but maybe we need to start by, by unpacking that phrase, the crown of life. This is what awaits you and I. 
what is the crown of life? How do you picture the crown of life? What, what do you have in, what picture comes to your mind when you read this expression? If you're like me, you probably have the picture of Jesus in white and you in white. And then there's a golden um, citadel that's placed on your head, right? Or maybe you're not like me. What are your thoughts? What is the crown of life? I think I know that Jesus has something to do with it. That's it. Okay. You know, that well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then mm -hmm. he'll give you a crown or something, or a prize, like Paul was pursuing a certain prize. Mm -hmm. all yeah. yeah, that's something. Thank you, Stephanie. So notice that this crown is not a crown, it's not necessarily a crown of gold, right? It's not a crown of something else. It is a crown of life. Or rather, it's called the crown of life. So in my perspective, the crown of life is the fullness of life. It is the embodiment of life given to you. So like, you know, man is a trapezoid being, right? Your spiritual and body. And the totality of your spiritual and body is your life. However, in salvation, it is your spirit that is saved, essentially. Or rather, it's your spirit that is regenerated. What that means is that the, the old man, the old nature is still in you. So like your mind still thinks the way it used to think before, right? The things that you gained mastery <laughs> in before, maybe you gained mastery in unforgiveness. You notice that it's still part of you and it's very frustrating. Maybe you even gained mastery in lust before. You notice that it's still part of you. And then there is your physical body, which is, which is frail, which is weak, which is prone to disease, prone to temptation which is essentially a problem, right? Um, so imagine that you have your life, but without any of these weaknesses. That's life in its fullness. That's what the crown of life is. The parallel, we need to skip a bit and look at the parallel of this verse to understand what the crown of life is. The parallel of this verse is found in First Peter chapter 1. Um, and we need to find a good place to start so we don't read too much. Um, okay, let's just start from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy, abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So verse 4, he talks about that crown. He says it's an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. So you know that... When he says incorruptible, he's comparing it to that which is corruptible. So this already hints to you that he's talking about a body that you're going to be given that is without weakness, without sickness, without fear, and a body that can allow you express your highest potential in God. It is reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness, the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see everything that we've studied already in James chapter 1. Whom, having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith. So this is another aspect of the crown of life. Receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Meaning that um, a time will come when the old man <laughs> will completely be put off in your life and your soul will be fully renewed and ready to do the will of God. The crown of life is the fullness of life. Anything that you find in life, that any moment that you enjoy that is fleeting, that doesn't last, that you wish lasted forever, the crown of life is the receiving of the life that can have and host and enjoy those moments perpetually. It is life in the way it should have been originally. And it says, this is something worth enduring for. That's what it says in verse 12. 
he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And before we look at what he says here, to those who love him, Stephanie has something in the chat. It's a question. So we get the crown in death. Reigning as kings in life has nothing to do with the crown. Well, what do you think, Stephanie, from the verse that we read in First Peter chapter 1? I guess we'll have to wait till after, you know, to, you know, with the revelation of Christ to get the crown. Yeah. It is not so, possible that the purposes of God can be fully accomplished in this creation because this creation has been judged, right? Um, we can enjoy a lot of the benefits of our salvation, but there is nothing it is that we taste, no, no amount of power, no amount of healing that we taste on this earth that can compare to the glory that is to be revealed. So, so I had a con sorry, Joshua, I had a conversation with someone today who was talking about how she's tired of living, that she wants to go out of, she I mean, you know, she's a nurse, and, but she wants to leave this world because there's no glory in this world, quote and unquote, and so she wants mm -hmm. to die. And mm -hmm. where is death? Why isn't it coming? Since, you know, there's more to lead, to get outside of this life than in this life. Is it that we should now start anticipating to die or something? You know, or is that yeah. just to the extreme? Yeah, Paul says that for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. We are going to see subsequently the correct answer to that question. There is a reason why God needs you alive. There's a reason why God wants you alive. And there are many reasons why God will take you. And one of them is that he doesn't think that that purpose can actually happen given the circumstances. But we're going to come to that, okay? Anyway, he says he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice here, that the proof that you love God is that you endure trial, right? And this is something very important because um, sometimes when we preach a works-based Christianity, we tend to draw motivation for our obedience, motivation for our enduring trials from our own selves, you know? Um, but it says that it is those who love God that endure. And what does that say to you? It means that if you're going to walk through a season of trial, the thing that will enable you to walk through it is that you have encountered a love for God that is intense enough that it, is, it, is, it inspires a love for him in your heart that enables you in your trial. So the, so the place to begin when it comes to building your strength and your capacity for trial is to tarry in the presence of God. Just, just behold his beauty consider his goodness right consider his works consider his merciful kindness consider his awesomeness let it inspire a love in you you know i keep saying that you cannot ask someone even if they call themselves a christian or not you cannot ask someone to live holy who has never been exposed to the holiness of god before because you cannot put the cart before the horse the premise for my work of holiness is that God, by his mercy, gave me a glimpse of his, of, his, of his holiness. There are many ways God can give you that glimpse. He can give you that glimpse through the life of another believer. I don't know if that happened to you before, that you encounter a believer that so challenges you that he sets you on a journey, right? Or he can do to you what he did to, to Isaiah, right? He can take you into the throne room itself and you realize that you've been pursuing vanity all your life. And it is that compelling vision that, that occasions your own work of holiness. The sovereign work of God that God has to do, either through someone or through his, or through a visitation from heaven. That's why the Bible says that follow after holiness without which no man can see God. Meaning that one of the things that means is that the hope that creation has of seeing God is your accurate work with him. Your accurate work with him it's supposed to be a compelling force that will, that will cause men to begin to build their own altars towards heaven. Right? And so our focus shouldn't be on trials itself. Our focus should be on the presence of God, on maintaining our connection. Because it is the love of God inspired in our hearts that will make us look at temptation, look at trial, 
and endure it. Nothing else. <laughs> no, you would realize that that the threat of hell, for example, is not going to be sufficient for people to turn their backs on on evil or wickedness. At least it's not going to be as strong as the as the as the pool of love. Okay. So verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Now, he begins to make the contrast, right, between trials and temptation. So you can see already the first contrast that temptation comes to make you fail. It comes to make you fall from grace. Temptation comes to make you lose your faith. But trial comes so that comes to approve you. And that's the first thing you ought to see. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You know, I was wondering for a while, like, why does he switch from trial to temptation? <laughs> there are many times you're going to wonder in the book of James, right? Why he switches from one thing to the other. But I think in this particular case, it's pretty clear why he does that. Because nothing stirs up temptation in us much more than a season of trial. So it's possible that you can wake up and nothing is going your way in a particular day. And there is a danger that it is in that moment of your weakness, of your vulnerability, that Satan will visit you. And the things that you kissed goodbye to, that you turned your back on, he will begin to present their appeal to you again. And so it's possible that in our bad days, as it were, in our worst days, that's the day that the passions of sin will be stirred up in our hearts because, I mean, if everything is going wrong, you might as well convert it to hell, right? <laughs> so it's very possible that if we don't receive trials correctly, um, we can internally become passive and give up and become exposed to temptation. And so James wants to, wants to delineate the matter very clearly for us and saying that temptations are very different from trials. Trials are usually um, from the external, things that are external to our nature are the source of trials, but temptations are from within. That's what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's the first thing, or the first two things he says about temptation. I like that this translation, the New King James, uses the word desires, not lust, right? Because sometimes lust can be a very esoteric term that we try to distance ourselves from. So desires is actually a much more accurate translation of the word. He's saying that the source of temptation is internal, meaning that if you are here and you have desires, then it means that you have been tempted before, you are either currently being tempted or you are going to be tempted. The only way you're not going to be tempted is if you don't have desires. So. How do desires become temptation? Because if you're saying that desires are the source of temptation, then it's almost as though God created evil, right? Because desires are like the natural part of your existence. Think about it, right? You, 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 when, when you get hungry, you desire to eat food, right? At the end of this Bible study and at the end of our midnight prayers, if you're there, you're going to desire to sleep, right? If you are... <laughs> a normal, healthy human, you, you probably have very strong desires for sex, right? Um, that don't go away for a very long time, for, for, for maybe two thirds of your life, right? But yet the very same desires that were created by God can become the source of temptation. And what that says to us is this, that when your desires begin to rule your life, that is when they become sin so that it's not only that you're eating to satisfy your hunger, you're now eating <laughs> uncontrollably, or you are now sleeping at the expense of your, of your calling, at the expense of your destiny. God's plan was not that our desires will master us. His plan was that we will master our desires. Right? So it begins from desire. But then notice that James says that the way temptation happens is that it draws you away. So his idea here is that temptation is a gradual process. You know, I always tell people that there is no such thing as it just happened. If you have worked with um, young people 
you know, like I have. And if you have been young yourself, or if you are young, like we all are, um, you would have probably been, I guess, tempted to use that expression for your foolishness, right? It just happened. You know, in a way to either console yourself or write off the fact that you did what you never thought would happen to you. But that's never the perspective of scripture. It says that you are drawn away and he uses the word enticed. So your own desires, when they begin to master you, um, another tool that Satan uses to draw you further is enticement, which you can call seduction, right? Or deception. Um, and it's important for us to understand the pattern of temptation, right? It begins with our desire. So it's what tempts you is a legitimate desire. It's just that it comes with enticement. It comes with seduction. It comes with deception. And in my study, I found out that the primary tool of Satan's deception, right? The primary tool of Satan's deception is this. His main strategy is to say to you that you can get away with sin. You can get away with something. I mean, think about what he did to Eve, the very first scenario that played out in scripture, right? He says, did God really sin? He began to question the justice system of God. He began to question the love of God and eventually began to trivialize the justice system of God. No, you will not surely die. So he was able to convince Eve that there are no consequences, right? that you can get away with it. You know, Jesus says that if you look at a woman to lust after her, that you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And I can tell you as a man that this is <laughs> probably one of the commandments of all in scripture that find out every single man. And if you will find that one of the reasons why we perpetuate in it is because we, we convince ourselves that we can actually get away with it. It's just, it's just a look, you know, it's just a second look or a third look. It's not, I don't have any thoughts. I don't have any imaginations. And, and you see, as long as you convince yourself that you can get away with it, then of course, you're going to perpetuate in that kind of behavior. Um, and that's how deception builds its case. When Satan tempted Jesus, he said to him that if you jump down from this place, the angels will hold you. You know, you can get away with it. Or if you command the stones to turn to bread, it's not a big deal, right? But Jesus didn't give any space for such kind of thinking. Where I'm going with this is that because deception is the foundation of most temptation, it is therefore true that what you believe is eventually going to <laughs> affect how you live, right? It's, it's it, the first determinant of your behavior it's your belief system, right? And just in case you find that your, your behavior is consistently out of line, right? With what you think you believe, <laughs> then you need to go back to your believing and ensure that you truly believe, right? And that you believe the right thing. James is going to handle this topic of believing correctly in chapter two, but that's the progression of sin. First of all, it stirs up a desire, a normal desire, then it draws you, deceives you. Right. Verse 15 says that desire, when it has come conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, I think the thing to see here with desire conceiving is that you can see that there's a gestation period. So it's sin is always a process. But there is a giving birth to sin. I don't know for the ladies here, is it possible for you to give birth without knowing about it? You know, it was against your will and you just give birth. Is that possible? Right? Giving birth is a willful action, meaning that you can terminate the process before the stage of giving birth. And that is one of the beautiful things um, about the life of God that we have received, that if you can spot temptation and you can see that Kai have been drawn away too far, you can terminate it. You don't have to give birth. If you don't terminate it, it's going to conceive. And the time will come when you take control of your will, and you have nothing left but to give birth to sin itself, right? And so it's, it's, it's at this point that disobedience comes in. And it says sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
So this is what begins as a simple desire, <laughs> eventually ends up in death. And death here is spiritual separation from God, right? And like you've seen in our studies um, of the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, death, as Paul understands it and as the scripture understands it, is not merely the cessation of life. Death is a principle. It is a process before it is an event, right? And it is possible that a believer can experience the principle of death, even though it's a believer. It's possible that the believer can experience the process of death, even though it's a believer. And it's also possible that they can experience the event of death, not only the first death, but also the second death. And that's why it says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Right? Because deception, if you want, if you look at these three Ds, right? Desire, deception, disobedience, death, the linchpin of sin in our life's friends is deception. And so it says, do not be deceived. Do not, meaning, do not convince yourself that you can get away with it. The smallest act of disobedience is going to have consequences. And if you decide to indulge in that act of disobedience, you need to consciously also decide that I'm willing to embrace the consequence of my disobedience. The smallest act of sin, as small as eating an apple, <laughs> if that is what Eve ate in the Garden of Eden, the smallest act of disobedience is going to have consequences. Long-lived consequences, short-lived consequences. And, and, and we're not even talking about losing salvation, just consequences. Right. Um, so he says, do not be deceived. Do not let Satan convince you that you can get away with it. He says that every good and perfect, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This is another puzzle. Why does he switch, you know, from talking about temptation to suddenly talking about every good and perfect gift? The reason is because whenever it is Satan comes with deception, what he comes with is a, it's a bargain. You know, he comes and tells you, you know, this thing that is $5,000 on Amazon, I can give it to you for $5. It's a bargain, right? He's, he's trading with your soul and he's making you think that you're actually getting a good deal. But the next time you and I are faced with temptation, what the apostle wants us to realize is that this desire is from God, whatever desire it is, whether it is a desire to protect myself that is making me lie, right? Or it's a desire for sex that is making me lost, or it is a desire from, for whatever it is that's, that's, that's drawing me and enticing me to temptation. It is a good gift, it's a perfect gift. It is from God and only God has the manual for correctly administering this desire. And so I, I must bring myself under his light. It, it, it comes down from the Father of light. There is, there is a wisdom for that desire. And what my flesh is telling me is not, it's not that wisdom. It says that with God, you can be guaranteed that there's no variation or shadow of turn. You know, if Satan convinces you to have premarital sex, there are many things he doesn't tell you about it <laughs> before the act that you just discover after the act. And that's what happened to Eve, that the moment she ate the fruit, she discovered she was naked. And then she tried to press control Z and she realized that, that the person who I was dealing with has, has sold me away. He says, no, they, that, they, that when God tells you that this is the way to go, there's no variation. You're not going to go in that path and discover that he was wrong. There's no shadow of turning with him. And he says that, Another motivation, right? Apart from the, so the first motivation we've seen for, for fleeing temptation is the, is the judgment of God, right? Which is the consequences of sin, right? Do not be deceived. You cannot get away with sin. The second motivation is the goodness of God. There is a good plan that God has for every desire that he has given to you and I. And then the third motivation is that you don't actually have to do it. You know, if Satan can convince you that it is impossible, and I've met people who say that, that body no be do, it is impossible to, to live the life of God in the flesh. If he can convince you about that, then he has already defeated you long before you face any temptation. Right? 
um, that's why John says that any spirit that denies that 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 Christ is God come in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist because it's, that spirit is denying that the life of God is possible in human flesh. Verse 18 says, of his own will, he of his own will he gave birth to us. You are you are a new creation. You were born by the word of truth. And he tells us the purpose for which you were born, that you might be a kind of first fruit of his creature. So, Stephanie, this is where the answer to your question comes in. That there is a hope that God had when he gave birth to you and I, that the whole of creation will look at you and I and will see what God is like. That God doesn't just only want to give you an inner righteousness that you can trade with. He wants that inner righteousness to be converted to an external righteousness. You know, I was asking myself recently that I, w- I went to visit a dentist, right? And then the dentist was, you know, in, was cleaning my teeth and blah, 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 blah. Asking myself, <laughs> does this dentist know that I'm a Christian or that I'm a man of God, right? And I was just thinking about it. As she's touching my teeth, is she going to feel an anointing? <laughs> or how on earth is she supposed to know that I'm a believer and I have the life of God inside of me? And as they were putting those things in my teeth and I was thinking about this stuff, it became clear to me that the only way she can know is by my conduct. It's by the fruits that I produce. And so the reason why it is more valuable to God that we are alive than that we go to rest is that there's a possibility of showcasing to creation the fruits of righteousness. The reality of who God truly is, the possibility of a new kind of life in human flesh. It says that of his own will, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. And in the verses that follow, he's going to break down what the word of truth is and why it's so important. Okay, that was a lot of verses to walk through. <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. Um, any thoughts and questions are welcome. I think the part that just stands out to me is that we can terminate um, terminate the, the lust or the desire before it gives birth to sin. Yes. I think it's that point that, as in just, because, you know, as Christians, we try to do, you know, how far can we go into the world that we would, you know, not, that wouldn't, I don't know how to put it. How far can we go that we wouldn't get burnt or that we wouldn't get, you know, those consequences that we try basically mm-hmm. test our luck a lot of times, a lot, but we try ourselves in these areas and just knowing that we should, they're being conscious of the fact that it is possible to terminate it before it gives birth to sin. Yeah. But for me, it's at what point, <laughs> you know, do I do that? Food for thought anyway. Thank you. <laughs> it's a question at what point or how far can you go? I think before... it's like how far, how far can one go? Or is it that you shouldn't even like venture into it at all? <laughs> how far is too far? Yeah, as in how, how far, far can we go before we can okay, this is it. I think I've had enough now. I should just terminate this. <laughs> because this <laughs> thing happen in split seconds. <laughs> no. Let's see. Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. I've spoken to people. Actually, it turns out when I remember the three cases that come to mind very quickly are ladies actually that uh, have had practical situations where they feel like how far is too far, right? Um, The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that nobody can take fire in his bosom and not be burned. It's not possible. And so that should be the, the, the counsel of wisdom to us. Do not take fire in your bosom and expect not to be burned. It's just a matter of time. Um, you know, the, the, the thing with sin is that the effects of sin actually live with us, right? God forgives you, but, it's, but the sign of sin is it remains in your flesh. It remains etched in your soul. If you can avoid having such a memory, I can assure you that it is better than to um, than to live with such a memory. Of course, many times 
our pride can come in the way so much. Our stubbornness can come in the way so much that God has no option but to just let us slip into something so that the pain of it will be enough, <laughs> enough reminder not to go, not to go near sin again. But the principle generally is do not take fire in your bosom. If we are to take, take it practically, if you're in a relationship, um, don't, don't spend the night on the same bed with your with the person you're in a relationship with, saying that nothing is going to happen. You know, <laughs> do not be deceived. Right. Um, for me, I think that it is only in very highly extreme contingencies that that is permitted. Um, yeah, listen to your body. Essentially, if your body is, is burning with loss, just just run away. Don't don't <laughs> don't tell yourself that you can take fire in your bosom and not be burned. Even if you are not burned, God will not be pleased by that game. Just right there, like some trivial things. For instance, you know, I've been on the process, you know, getting this visa to Austria. And then the, there's this part where I couldn't get an appointment to Austria. So I said, okay, I'm going to go through Norway. Well, I know I'm never going to go to Norway, at least not anytime soon. But it's like, you know, everyone's telling me, you know, yeah, just say you're going to Norway and then they'll give you the visa and then you can go to Austria. In my heart, I'm like, am I not lying? Like, is this, I don't know, very trivial stuff, but it, it got me thinking. Lord, I'm not going to Norway, I'm going to Austria. Is it okay for me to lie to these people that I'm going to Norway? Get a fake, you know, fake ticket to say I'm going to Norway and all that stuff. It's like, do you understand what I'm saying, Josh? Yeah, I can tell you one thing as a principle, and then we'll just continue. We can talk about this later, Stephanie, but there is nothing good that is worth lying about, right? That's what James is telling us in verse 17. Every good gift comes from above it comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning if you have to lie to get something you need to question if it's god who is giving it to you if it is god who is giving it to you then you have to hold on that to the promise that every good and perfect gift is from above it comes from the father of lights and when he decreases a thing he does not change his mind Right, and see and see God work. So if you if you want to go to Norway, you can actually go to Norway, but don't lie about going to Norway. Right, um, <laughs> nothing stops you from flying to Norway and then flying to Austria from there. Eventually, but yeah, that's the, point the plan. Is, eventually, yeah, thank. You. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay, so I think any other thoughts before we move on. Thank you for these very interesting analogies, Stephanie. Okay, so Terence, from verse 19 to verse 25. Verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he, for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this, this one will be blessed in what he does. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Terence. So then, my beloved, verse 19, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, this is another 
very short section that you wonder what is doing here, right? Like, how did we go from um, talking about every good and perfect gift about temptations to, to being swift to hear, slow to speak? Well, it begins with a so then. It means we have to link verse 19 to verse 18, where he told us that the reason God gave birth to us is that he had a hope in his heart that we might be a kind of first fruit of his, of his creatures, that our lives on earth will showcase his life, will showcase his, his, his virtues, right? Will showcase his qualities. And James is saying that if your life is going to be the kind of life that will showcase the values of heaven, the value system of heaven, if your life is going to be the kind of life that would embody the fruits of righteousness, the first skill you need is the ability to hear. We've said this before in our studies last year, that the most important skill you're going to need as a believer is the ability to hear. Jesus says, take heed what you hear. That's the second part of hearing, that it's not just enough to hear, but you have to take heed to what you're hearing. Like, you have to pay attention to what you're hearing. You don't have to just drift you know you're going to church you are hearing but you're not really hearing you know but you have to take heed to what you hear but the ability to hear is the most important skill that you're going to have in revelation everything that is written to the churches is addressed to he who has an ear and it says be be swift to listen because of what is at stake in your life be swift to listen slow to speak of the context here is that Preaching, as we know it today, is not the way it was for these Jews. And they were very opinionated people. And so preaching at that time was more like dialogue, where it was very difficult for, for one person like this to speak when everybody else listens without debating and arguing. And eventually, you know how it is when debating and arguing starts. Wrath or anger is what follows. And he says that such, such behavior cannot produce the righteousness of God because that's, that's his emphasis, producing the righteousness. I know that you have righteousness as a free gift, as a, as a down payment, as a deposit from heaven, as, an, as a nature. But what James cares about is the practical outworking of that righteousness. You need to be able to hear. And the first enemy of hearing is when you speak too much. You know, it's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. If you're going to love someone correctly, you need to listen to them first, right? If you're going to, um, if you're going to overcome temptation, you need to spend time paying attention to what God says about it. I find that a lot of Christians are just drifting. They don't really know what God says about certain issues. They don't like their feet is not planted on what God said. They don't really know what it is. They're just drifting here and there. And this is a, 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 a primary source of temptation, the fact that your convictions are not rooted in the ground. It says, be swift to hear, be slow to speak and slow to anger. You know, the freedom of speech has come under, under, the, under the lens lately with Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. And people have been trying to understand freedom of speech philosophically, where did it come from? And you realize that freedom of speech does not exist without a Judeo-Christian worldview, right? The worldview that there is a spark of divinity in every person. And each person is created in the image of God. And so each person has something to say that has each person deserves to be heard, to be listened to. Um, and in a sense, each of us, when we speak, we are we are contributing to the logos in a sense, right? And, and the logos is the logic, is the reason of God. That's what Christ is. Um, and our words as humans have, have the power to create reality. Um, in, in, because of that kind of power that has been committed to us, you're going to find out that the primary source of conflict in your relationship with anybody, family, colleagues, is going to be words so anytime there is an exchange of logos exchange of ideas exchange of words it is possible that it could degenerate into wrath and he's saying that you need to gain mastery over your speaking and your hearing if you're going to produce the fruit of righteousness and then he begins to tell us how to gain this mastery 
And the imagery he has here from verse 21 to 25 is the imagery of a garden, right? It's essentially saying that your heart is like a garden. And for the word of God to profit you, to make sense to you, to produce value in your life, you need to prepare the soil. It says lay aside, dig, dig up all, fil all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. You know, the psalmist says that if I, if, I, if I harbor iniquity in my heart, right, God will not hear me. Meaning that if, I, if I'm in sin and I love my sin and I'm trying to protect it, when I come to the word of God, the word of God will just fly over, over my protection shield. But it says dig up. Dig up the soil of your heart. Come with a broken heart. Come with a heart that's willing to learn. Because the logos of God, the word of truth, is the only hope that we have for the injection of life to overcome temptation. That's why these Bible studies are, are absolutely necessary for all of us. Because no matter what happens, the word of truth is still the only source of life that can enable you to walk and produce the fruits of righteousness. And so when you come before the word of truth, lay aside, dig up all filthiness. And then there are certain things in your character that are not just there, but they, are, they have a way of overflowing. You know, maybe you have an anger that can overflow once in a while. It says, lay them aside. And after you have laid aside, receive with meekness the implanted word of God. So, so the seed of the word of God can now be dropped in your heart. And it says that it is able to save your souls. You remember Peter told us that receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. So essentially what James is saying is, for the word of God to profit you, the first prerequisite is that your heart must be prepared. Pray in tongues, fast, do whatever it takes to ensure that your heart is prepared. Right? In case you listen to a sermon, and it blesses you, but then you end up forgetting everything, <laughs> or you, you don't, you're not able to put it to practice. Take a fast, pray, and listen again. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, that the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And he was saying this to, the, to people who obviously didn't understand what he was saying, meaning that even though the words were spirit and life, most of the hearers were not receiving it as spirit and life. That's why they were debating with it. That's why instead of the word transforming them, it made them enemies of the cross. Right? It didn't produce the fruit of righteousness in their lives. And then you realize that the word of God can only be spirit and life to the heart that is prepared. When, when a heart is on the edge for Jesus, when it has been cleaned of its prejudices, of its filthiness, you know, you don't come expecting God to say one thing or the other. When the heart is laid bare like that, every word of Jesus becomes spirit and life. The only thing Jesus might say to you is yes, and that yes can become a fear that drives you for the next five years. And when you try to explain to somebody, the person like, is it only yes you heard that is making you disenergized and ecstatic? is that it's not in the English of the world. It is the fact that the word fell on the right soil. That's what the parable of the sower is about. Right? It fell on a heart that was not distracted, that was not weighed down by the cares of this world, a heart that was ready. This is what it means to be here, to prepare your heart. It says, it says that the word of God is able to save your souls. We don't have time for this, but where the seat of, of sin is in our souls, because like we said, the soul is the seat of mastery. And the thing that makes us vulnerable is our soulish existence. Right? And it says that the word of God is able to go into those depths and save it, if it is received correctly. And then he admonishes, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Right. So this is the drifting issue that we talked about earlier. So let's look at what drifting looks like practically. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, a mirror, obviously, is for observing yourself. But 
a mirror is not very profitable to you, especially if you're if you're a lady here, right? A mirror is not very profitable to you if all you do with it is to observe yourself. Because what you want to actually do with the mirror is not just to observe yourself, but to also examine yourself, right? You want to find spots, you want to find wrinkles, you want to find things that are not in order. That's what the mirror is for. You're not supposed to forget what you saw on the mirror. You're supposed to pay attention to it and to expose yourself to, to, to water treatment, as it were, until the blemishes are removed. The word of God is not for scanning. Of course, it is good to read through the word of God for leisure because it goes into your mind, it goes into your spirit. But if it's going to profit you, you must go beyond scanning the word <laughs> to examining your life before the word. Friends, there's none of us that should come before the word of God as perfect people or should come before the word of God ashamed of the kind of things that it will reveal when we see it. That's his job. Jesus is coming for, for, for a bride that is without spots and without wrinkle. And his hope of achieving that bride is by the washing of water by the word. So when we come to the word of God, when you hear the word of God, allow it to examine you, right? Of course, after it reveals your flaws, you may not necessarily have the power to fix the things that pop up, but at least that's where it begins. Allow it to examine you. That's what he's saying. And he says in verse 25 that he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. There is a blessing for everyone who does. It means that every time that you come to the word of God, there is always something to do. What James is saying to us is, let your Christianity be practical. Let your worship be true. This is spiritual maturity, saying go beyond the sweet words. They are sweet and they are nice. And step into the layer of practice. The hope that God had for you and I is that will be a kind of first fruit. And so when you come to the word of God, come with a questioning mind, with an inquisitive mind. What would the Lord have me do? Right? In case you are in a state where you think that the word of God has not profited you, ask yourself, am I a doer of the word? You know, if we take an example, Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And maybe you might be in a season in your life where, where the finances are straight and they are tight. And when you look at your finances, you're like, hmm, I'm in a season where I should actually be receiving. You know, I don't know if, if anybody feels like that way or has felt that way before. When you look at your finances, you're like, I'm, I'm up for some receiving. Yeah. But the testimony of scripture says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Meaning that if you're going to know the blessing of that word, in the midst of that straightness, <laughs> you have to do the word, you have to give. It is in giving. It's not before you give that you know the blessing. It is in giving that you know the blessing. And he says, do not just look into the perfect law of liberty, but continue in it. The word of God, friends, it has the capacity to set us free if we will continue. The burden of my heart is that our worship will be real. Our worship will be true. That by our decisions, our choices, the choices we make, the practical everyday choices we make, that those those decisions, no matter how little, those choices will become our act of worship. Yes, that our faith will become practical in all ramification. Okay? As we close this chapter, can you read the last two verses for us? Terence, verse 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not riddle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Amen. Amen. So this is a good summary of chapter one, right? James is saying that your faith should be practical. He's saying that pure and undefiled religion. Now, the word religion has been 
uh, has been uh, what's the word it, it has it has been battered a bit in our generation because rightfully so people are beginning to um, discover the harms of religion that is possible for someone to lose connection with god but the person is engaged in the the externalities of practice and of ritual and of rites right and usually the person can become dogmatic about it even though that the reality is not there and that's what makes religion awful in itself but you see there's nobody who wants to follow god that will not end up being religious right so we cannot throw the throw the baby with the bathwater. to be religious means to be dutiful in a particular thing if you're going to work with god you're going to need to um, build in a life of prayer and your life of prayer in this in in practical definition becomes religious and say that the way to measure your spirituality right if you want to measure if everything that you're doing you know, i don't know if you ever think about it all this my service for god my being a christian all this my giving am i going to church well what's what's my standing with god you know he says that the metrics for that, uh, the first is that pure and undefiled religion happens before God and the Father. So it means that my first audience is, is God. We don't have time, but you would have seen that James, especially chapter one, is a summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right? That there's supposed to be a secret purity to my life. You know, the reason why I can stand and preach to you and, and you are blessed in any form is because I maintain my connection with God. That's the first measure of my spiritual rank, right? The, the truthfulness, the purity, the vitality of my connection with God. If I lose my connection with God, it's only a matter of time before what we're doing will become religion. It will have a lot of fancy, good words, but it will lack the ability to minister life as a minister as a christian the only thing you have is your connection with god it says pure religion is first of all before god the father and then pure religion overflows with mercy you see as strict as god will have you be with yourself when it comes to other people god will have you overflow with mercy that's why it says to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble because remember that God's hope is that we'll be a kind of first fruit. And in this world of oppression and injustice, it is through you and I that God seeks to show that there is, a, there is a God of love and justice that sees even the lowest of society. In my relationship with others, the demand of God is that I'm merciful and I'm kind towards them. The same mercy and kindness that God showed towards me. And the final mark of spiritual ranking is that you keep yourself unspotted from the world. You know, it's possible for you to, I don't know if you've met Christians whose hearts are pure towards God. They are mercifully kind to other people, but they are not able to keep themselves unspotted from the world. Or we are not able to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. For some people, you see very earnest and fervent Christians who cannot just stop masturbating for example because this happens to be a very practical everyday example in our day and time right um, like we said your spiritual ranking is determined by your ability to subvert your worst desires in romans chapter 5 verse 17 the scripture that stephanie alluded to earlier that much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, they shall reign in life. The first place that that reigning begins is, in, is with yourself. A man that cannot reign over himself has no hope of reigning over the devil. If sin still controls a man, that man cannot defeat principalities and powers. It's not possible. Paul says having the readiness to avenge every disobedience when your own disobedience is complete. So before we start looking for great mountains to move, right? I know that we are hungry, for example, for revival and all of these things. The cry of our hearts must be that if all we have is our work with God, that let it be pure 
Let it be sincere. Let it be true. Let my flesh, my desires not dominate me. But through righteousness, let me subvert those desires. And this is where we, we conclude James chapter 1. Um, it's my prayer, like I mentioned earlier, that our faith will become practical indeed, that our worship will become true, that our worship will become living and active, that it will go beyond performance, to go beyond profession, and it will be worked out in practical terms. That if the only thing God has in our city is us, if the only thing he has is in our families is us, that, that, that the light of our witness will be sufficient for God to have a testimony in the space where he has planted us. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.